Hello, welcome to a brand new episode of Other Moods, the podcast about introspection and observation, taking a look at reality, uh, insights, my opinions really. So, I want to talk about non-duality. And uh, if you come across this, you probably are aware of non-duality. If you don't, what is non-duality? Uh, I guess a simple explanation is non-duality is the awareness that there's no separation uh, between anything. That it's all this part of the same. It, it is the same. You know, the I, the ego, the self is, is a construct. Uh, I don't say false self. Because to me, false—I mean, it is when you say false, it—it it kind of implies phony, uh, inauthentic. And I think your ego is authentic. I think when you grow up and how you, how you're raised and the environment and how your personality is constructed, I think that's authentic. So I don't want to say the false self. Uh, I just say that it's sort of the the surface the surface level self. The, the 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 icing on the cake it was that what I call the ego and sometimes the icing isn't good right so but yeah so non-duality is about that awareness and I would say not only awareness but once you have that awareness then so that detachment somewhat from the ego I don't think you can ever be completely detached from the ego and be a functional person in modern society, this, I just think it's, it's very difficult. That's just my opinion. You can disagree with me. And I've been, I'm heavily influenced by non-duality. Do I call myself a non-dualist? Uh, I guess yes and no. Which feels like a very non-duality thing to say. In that I recognize that, that awareness of the the ego and the I and sort of the, the awareness of the whole. But I also believe that this awareness of that and detachment from the ego is probably not enough. At least for me. For others, it probably is. But for me, yeah. So, and I mentioned this in the previous podcast episode, a couple of a couple episodes ago. Talking about like what what I believe. So, growing up Christian, Christianity being a big part of my life, still deeply influenced by it, but not not claiming the label of Christian, but because of Christ-minded still, that being my sort of native spiritual language, because I was raised in it. So maybe that has something to do with my feelings, uh, or maybe it's just not a, a letting go of that, because uh, not that I want to. There was a point where maybe I did want to, but then I wouldn't say sort of a, a, a different understanding, a different perspective of, of, of what, I, what I knew, what I was taught, and sort of still having that as sort of a foundation, but that, not, but that not being the whole perspective, if that makes any sense to you. So the reason why I'm, I'm talking about this, because there's non-duality enough in everyday life to have that awareness and to have that sort of acknowledgement is that enough to get you through the everyday in dealing with just the, the pressure of life? 
dealing with relationships and money and career or business or neighbors or all of this stuff, sickness and all the things you deal with is non-duality enough. For some people, I, I would it probably is just having that because it that sort of detachment from the experience that you know that it's not you. It's just something that you know. You're experiencing it, but it's also part of everything. But like when there, when when there are deep times of stress and trouble, I mean, what do you rely on? Is there uh, something else you fall back on? And is that sort of being, is that being the opposite of, of non-duality, or is it part of non-duality? Is it because if everything is part of the same thing, then you could say, yeah, you just having something else that outside of the acknowledgement and the awareness of the I and the self and detachment from the ego, having something else which says, hey, I, I need help. I need guidance. I need something. So these are just questions that I have uh, that I'm just sort of speaking out loud. And what the and I guess the answer, maybe there doesn't need to really be an maybe there doesn't need to be an answer. At, at least a definitive answer. Maybe just the fact that the question exists is enough. Maybe that's part of the problem with human beings that we, sometimes we have so many questions and we're like and we're so desperate to get to the answer. Sometimes maybe the just the journey after the question or, or, or thinking about the question is enough. And, I saw, and, and if you're listening to this and you're a non-dualist and you're, you're, you have that label, please don't take this as like I'm being critical because I think non-duality uh, is a very, the, the concept is very powerful and it's something that I think I think more people should be aware of. I think especially people who have felt confined and, yes, traumatized by either traditional religious beliefs or maybe grew up and had no, any sort of, any sort of any interaction with any kind of religious belief, but yet still feel sort of the same sort of trauma and pressures that those who do have because because society sort of some in many ways society reflects many of those things still so i think non-duality uh is the, the teachings the, the idea are, have huge value and i wouldn't be talking i probably wouldn't be talking to you right now on this podcast if it wasn't for non-duality and and the idea the concepts of it but i do wonder is there more to, to be discussed and talked about when, you, when you're just dealing with everyday people trying to live everyday lives and dealing with all that comes with it? And even the practices where we talk about like meditation and mindfulness or whatever we do or prayer, whatever, whatever we're doing to get to something does that sometimes become a crutch or like it, it, it becomes 
sort of an attachment. In, in, the, in the pursuit of detachment, we become attached. Is that, you know... Because I feel like sometimes, like, we're, we're trying to get away from things, from traditional things that may have inflicted sort of a lot of stress on us and anxiety. But in the process, we take... We consume new things, things that are new to us, and then we kind of put that same sort of attachment and symbolism on them. So we kind of, we may be leaving one religion, but creating something, a new religion. We're exchanging one master for another master. Maybe we can just be free. If, if you know, if, if we can get to that point. So just a couple of thoughts about non-duality. Now, it's March 13th. I'm recording this. It's the day after March 12th, which would have 2022, which would have been the 100th birthday of Jack Kerouac. A writer of amazing books on the road, the Dharma Bums, my favorite, Subterraneans. Uh, the man who put the beat in the beat generation, so to speak. Uh, great writer. Uh, someone who... Like I said, a huge influence on on American literature and American culture. The B generations, the nineteen fifties counterculture, which was a foundation for what we see in the sixties and seventies, uh, has such a huge impact on American and global culture. And I talked about before about about the influence of non-duality on this podcast. Well, Jack Kerouac is another huge influence for me, and. I was a late sort of convert to Jack Kerouac. Um, of course, On the Road is such a famous book, but it wasn't. It was we didn't have that. In, we didn't read it in high school. It wasn't part of our required reading, even though it's an important book. And I remember being a young person and sort of like skimming through On the Road, and I was like, because some, like someone had a copy of it, and I was like, it just I didn't. It didn't. It didn't, it didn't hit me. It didn't get. To, it didn't grab me. Right, but. You know, I knew Jack Kerouac was. Allen Ginsberg's How, one of the most famous poems ever, really. So these were names I always was, I knew of and were aware of, and I knew they had a huge impact. But I really didn't, I didn't really read a lot of their writings. I knew sort of scant information about them. I knew the impact and influence they had, especially here in New York, where they held court, and you know, where they lived. And we sort of really nurtured them. So, yeah, so I knew of them, knew of some of their work, but wasn't didn't really have an influence on me, really. And I, one person in that group, what we call the B Generation, that probably had an influence on me, that I was aware of, was William Burroughs, right? William Burroughs, who in many ways is almost anti-beat, even though he was part of that scene. Uh, but this sort of such a different vibe from Kerouac and Ginsburg and Corso and... And, and some of those folks, but so William Burroughs, you know, I remember reading about William Burroughs when I was a teenager uh, about you know the whole situation with his wife being killed, the game of William Tell, because they were they were making the movie the, um, about William Burroughs, Naked Lunch. They were doing the movie about the his most famous book. So I remember reading about him. He's a really interesting, fascinating guy. And I remember reading an excerpt from the book when I was young and thinking, oh my God, what is what is this about? Like, it just was sort of a shock. And I was like, I don't know if this is for me. Does this seem... But I was always fascinated by William Burroughs. And anytime 
I would see anything with him in it or any kind of anything. I was like, wow, this truly fascinating guy. So flash forward, and I'm probably thinking, where's this story going? This give me some give me some some breathing room here. So flash forward a couple of decades later, uh, the late Anthony Bourdain, right? Uh, great television host, great writer, uh, someone also who's had a lot of influence on me. So Anthony Bourdain's show, uh, Parts Unknown. I think the, it was the first season, I believe, it was second season. He goes to Tangiers in Morocco, which was a famous sort of gathering point and hangout destination for many people of that kind of culture. William Burroughs and, and Ginsburg and, and the Rolling Stones, all sorts of people. Paul Bowles, another great writer. So, so Andy Bourdain did this episode in Tangiers, and a lot of it is oh, talks about William Burroughs, pretty much a love letter to William Burroughs. And once again, I remember being fascinated once again. I'm like, you know what? I really need to read Burroughs. Like, I really need to try to read Naked Lunch again. It's so that small excerpt that I read. So I read Naked Lunch. And I was like, I really enjoyed it. I read uh, Queer and Junkie, which were his first books that were published, which I thought were amazing. And I read a book that him and Carrot wrote together, but it wasn't published it was published like almost four decades after Kerouac's death, and almost like almost two and a half decades after Burroughs' death. It was called uh, "When the Elephants Were Bought in Their Tank," and it's about like this real life murder and investigation that they were involved in, and they and they wrote a book about it, but it was it wasn't published in their lifetime. I read that book. I'm like, you know what? I really need to read Kerouac. So, so I read "On the Road," and something just hit me like thunderstruck. I was like, whoa. And then also, uh, around this time, uh, the movie. They had made a movie on the road. And I remember watching the movie. So I just remember sort of becoming almost obsessed with Jack Kerouac. And just trying to read anything I could. And uh, reading, you know, the subterraneans and you know, whatever I could, could find by Kerouac. And the Dharma Bungs, which has become almost a Bible for me. It's a, it's a book that I've, I've read I reread parts of it constantly. But Kerouac's sort of tenderness in his writing, his longing, and yes, the sort of that sort of troubled soul that is expressed so well on paper really spoke to me. So it was Kerouac writings became a part of my spiritual journey, or excursion, whatever you want to call it, along with other things that were happening. At the same time, it wasn't this one thing that was sort of had me on this sort of journey where I'm having a podcast talking about these things. But Kerouac, a huge oversized influence on me uh, the past, uh, I'm going to say, f- five, six years more, more even longer. Um, time is, is you be living, it's hard to keep time these days. We just, we just push the clocks forward. But I feel like time is I feel like time is really slow and time is really fast at the same time with everything that's going on. But yeah, so Kerouac has had this influence on me, and I understand. Yes, I know the. I know people in this time of day we look at stuff, and we say, "Oh, that's problematic," or oh, "That's troublesome." And yes, Kerouac and Ginsburg and all these folks, basically any writer of any note or any artist of any note has issues or things where you're like, oh, you know, things, cringeworthy moments, whatever, or things you say, yeah, so, and I say, you know, but 
in the hole, I think at the source of Jack Kerouac's sort of really exploration into his own soul and sort of into reality and nature, uh, it really is a beautiful thing and it really had a huge influence on me and continues to have a huge influence on me. So it was just his 100th birthday, he would have been 100. And the sad thing about Kerouac was that, you know, he basically drank, he drank himself to death, right? He was, you know, he was only 47 years old, right, when he died, 1969. And still, I think, had so much to contribute before he, you know, alcohol took over. And sort of, as he got older, became a little bit, became a little bitter. And, and sort of maybe, I think, had some resentment towards what people believed the beats were about. That's the way he believed that they were about. And sort of the stereotype, the beatniks. But the beat generation and the Kerouac, uh, I think just had such a huge influence. And I think for the for the for good, yes, you can say that there were there was overindulgences that sprung up from the counterculture of the fifties and sixties to the seventies, uh, and did that lead to the conservative? sort of pushback of the Reagan 1980s, not, not to get too political here, but, you know, yeah, we could talk about that stuff, but culture and society kind of works, sort of swings that away, swings from one extreme to another, but what is it reacting to? And I think the V2 were reacting to sort of that post-World War II and sort of mass consumerism that was enveloping around them, and they kind of say, hey, you know what, there's something else here. We, and I think about, you know, in a lot of, especially when you talk about Christianity, the desert fathers, the desert fathers and mothers, those who sort of uh, took a step back from the traditional church to sort of find meaning and longing. The beats in many ways were sort of like the desert fathers and desert mothers, where they took a look around the society and say, you know, this, is, this isn't the vibe that we want. There's something else here. And, and, and they went there on, and they... Not only went their own way, but they wrote about it. They talked about it, and they really they shaped the culture, and they kind of did it. They kind of knew they would do it. They kind they had uh, they broke that kind of manifesto when they were still at Columbia, and were like, "This is how literature should be. This is how the culture should be, and and this is how we're going to do it." And they did it, which is pretty amazing. And and the influence that they had they've had for the past you know sixty seventy years really. Is, is, is absolutely amazing. But that, I think that that search for, for meaning and longing and belonging and sort of beyond the surface, beyond the veneer of sort of just what society tells you, you should look like this, you should dress like this, you should be this, you should have this career, you should make this much money. We should always should be looking for more. Or looking beyond that. And this isn't about casting aspersions or anything. This isn't saying, that's bad. This is good. It's about all of it together. The whole. And, and so that's the, the influence of the beat. And of course, we can't really talk about the beat generation without talking about the music. That really sort of was the foundation. That really inspired them. Uh, jazz. Bop. Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, um, these great musicians, and yes, we, we, you can't. It doesn't. People don't talk about it a lot, but you have to talk about the racial dynamics, really, of uh, 
to the black music and black musicians and the white writers. Now they were, of course, there were, you know, black writers who were part of that scene who don't get as much acclaim, but are still known. Uh, Ted Jones. Uh, it's just a lot of people there who didn't get quite the attention, but that was society was was that way, right? It was they can certain things they could accept because it was like, hey, Kerouac, the movie star, good looks, uh, this sort of that presence, right? That they would accept from a Jack Kerouac, they maybe they wouldn't accept from say Leroy Jones later, uh, Mary Baraka, or you know this. That's the way, but that's the way the culture was. And would 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 it would it be considered more of a dangerous movement by authorities if 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 more African Americans, more Black people were at the forefront? People like Ted Jones, another great poet who was part of that scene, or Bob Kaufman, if they were at the forefront with with this movement, uh, then sort of been more of a pushback against it. Not that there wasn't a pushback against them because of this sort of anti-establishment uh, feeling to it. But yeah, but I think it's, it's, I think it's okay to talk about those things. We, we should talk about those things. But I think we shouldn't get away from the, I think the, it was at the core of this. And that's taking a look at society, taking a look at what's going on and saying there's more and by more there's something more meaningful than what we've told has meaning which is very difficult and it's very easy to get caught up in the world right you want you want nice things you want you know and a lot of times there's this idea that if you're a person who is supposedly spiritual on a spiritual journey, then you should sort of play this role as sort of a meek, quiet, sort of non-flashy, don't, you don't want anything, you're just there. Now, if that's who you are, if that's your nature, then fine. But I think, you know, going back to talking about non-duality and what, is it enough? For some people, it is enough because of their personality. I think a lot of our, I think a lot of our beliefs, our, our religion, or our political beliefs, or even when you're dealing with things like gender identity or sexual orientation, so much of how we conduct and present ourselves in the public sphere and in life is based on our personality. It's based on, are you an introvert? Are you an extrovert? Are you some combination of the two? Are you a high-energy person, a low-energy person? And that's probably for a whole nother episode, really. And I think because we live in this age of... We deal with social media and apps, and we, we get so much information thrown at us, I think it's very easy to get lost. Very easy to get lost in the world. It's very easy to get caught up either in materialism or even lust. 
and I'm not, no, I'm not gonna be a Puritan or anything. I'm just saying we have these extremes, right? Uh, for years, you know, the religious right, right? We had the people who say, you know what, you should, everything you, anything that is sensual is wrong. Anything dealing with sex, anything dealing with this unadulterated fun. The music, the music is bad. The girls wearing miniskirts is bad. Anything that's just bad, right? We have that called the extreme. And then we have another extreme where people say, well, you know, nothing, there are no boundaries. Everything is allowed. And the question, and I think anytime anyone is pushing you to say, no, you have to be this way. You have to be that way. I think you have to be the way you are or the way you want to be. You know, you got to be true to to your own nature and not what the world says, not what any sort of uh, either religious rights say or any like extreme sort of heathen. You know, if you want to be extreme hedonist, more power to you. I'm just saying you, you have to find your own path and, and be on your own journey. And you just can't be like, well, people say I should be doing this. And people say I should be doing that. What do you want to do? I think that's really, really important. Maybe, and you know, and maybe, maybe you just want to sit somewhere and just, I don't know, maybe you want to, maybe you want to get high and make music. Maybe that is your, maybe that is your thing to do. Maybe you want to, you know, bake cookies. Maybe you want to make money. I don't know. Maybe you just, maybe you, you feel like, hey, I can, if I make a lot of money, I can do lots of things for people I care about. Maybe, maybe you just want to travel and you need money. But I think anytime we have these preconceived notions, this is good, this is bad, this is too much, this is not enough. It's like when you go out to eat with someone and you're both hungry, but one person just orders a lot of food. Like they're really, really hungry. The other person maybe orders just, you know, an appetizer and maybe like one small entree. And the other person ordered like three appetizers, an entree, and dessert. Both were hungry, but both wanted to go to the restaurant, but both had different appetites. Now, did someone ruin the lunch because they didn't want to eat as much? No, it's just they had different appetites. I mean, we all had different appetites. We all have different thresholds, different wants, different needs. But I think what's essential, essential is the process of knowing yourself, that self-inquiry. What do you want? Why do you want it? Who you are, who do you think you are? What is, you know, that hat once again about ego and attachment, the I. Who is this I what you're referring to? When you're saying, well, I'm this person, I'm that person, I like this, I like that. Okay, well, who is that I? Who is that, really? To, to think about it. And, 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 all, and the things you label or list down as being definitions of that I. Is that just on the surface? Is that just, you know? Or is there something more? 
And what answers do you get to? Like I said before, maybe it's not about answers. Maybe it's just about living with the questions. Maybe that's the whole point of it all, just living with the questions. And your answer may be different from my answer, and the next person's answer might be different, but maybe it doesn't matter. But that's, you know, in anything you do, any practice that you have, it could be journaling, it could be praying, it could be meditation, it could be yoga. Maybe it's on an exercise bike. Who knows? Maybe it's poetry. Maybe whatever you do. Whatever, you, whatever you're trying to get to, whatever you're using, whatever vehicle you're using to try to get to a certain place or point. But it's just a vehicle. It's not the destination. Now, what is the destination? Where is the destination? Maybe just enjoy the trip. You ever, I think one of my favorite things when I was a kid was whenever uh, someone was driving, you know, like, either my, my step-grandfather, because he was like, the one that had a car in the family, in the immediate family. So sometimes we'd get in the car, especially in the summertime, and we'd just be going somewhere. I had no idea where we were going. But it was just nice, the ride, it was just a nice ride. We didn't know where we were going. How long it's going to take to get there? What are we going to do when we get there? But sometimes it's just, it was fun just to be in the car enjoying the nice scene, right? So maybe it's not about the destination or even the vehicle. Maybe it's just the ride itself. So on that note, um, look, you can... I'm on... You can find me in the podcast notes. You'll see that I'm on Instagram. There's other moods podcasts on Instagram. There's also my personal slash professional with Instagram at Glenn Price Man, Glenn with two ends, Price Man with two ends. Uh, also Twitter. Um, you can find this podcast. If you find this podcast, you know where it is already. And um, you know, if you would like to buy this. Podcast host, a cup of coffee. Uh, I'm on Venmo with the handle at man, Glenn, man with two wins, Glenn with two wins. I want to thank you for listening. Hoping that that you either gained something from this or maybe it was just a pleasant distraction. Thank you. Take care of yourself.